Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And we're the ladies of Groundworks, Inc. We design, build, and maintain gardens all around New York. And this show aims to bring the culture to horticulture. So today's Columbus Day, Alice. It is. Happy and Columbus Day. Happy Columbus Day, or unhappy Columbus Day, <laughs> depending on how you feel about it. But it is, for here, for those of us in the U.S., a national holiday when we honor Columbus's, quote-unquote, discovery of the new world. Well, let me just say that I saw a quote <laughs> on Facebook today. Somebody posted, and it said, let's celebrate Columbus Day by walking into someone's house and telling them that now we live there. Oh, <laughs> you're preaching to the prior here, Alice. <laughs> Snap. Snap. So, uh, well, here in New York, we have a huge Columbus Day parade down Fifth Avenue. I know because I've been there, and it's complete with all the trappings. Large floats with scantily clad mermaids, Italian brass bands, and even a fleet of cement trucks. <laughs> of course. They're cement trucks. <laughs> Columbus and cement. <laughs> they, they just go together. Um, but not everyone wants to celebrate Columbus, as history has revealed that his arrival and the subsequent European exploration of the New World had devastating consequences for many of the native peoples of the Americas, including the Taino people of the Caribbean, where Columbus first made contact. So last March, I had the pleasure of visiting Puerto Rico for the first time. It was a beautiful island, and uh, it was one of the native lands of the Taino people, and one of the places where Columbus made landfall in 1493. So while I was there, I took a small biplane to Vieques, which is an island off the mainland, where our good friend, who's going to be our guest today, Scott Appel, has lived for, I think, approximately 10 years. Yeah. Um, and one of the first places that Scott took me upon my arrival was to what the locals call the quote-unquote Columbus tree, this massive, gnarled, Sieba pentandra tree that has stood in that spot for an estimated 300 years. And I kind of got chills, Alice, when, when I thought that I was possibly sitting under the same canopy that may have shaded some dead explorers, right. you know, probably what was not the Colum- caliper of that tree caliper. It was not. <laughs> it wasn't. I mean, how many people's arms would it take to circle 20? That's, cool. you know, um, I took a photo in front of it and I looked like a speck, yeah. you know, Anyway, and that's kind of where the story starts. That island, and of course our world, is vastly different from when those first Europeans landed there and made contact and changed history and changed our diets forever. So today we're enlisting the help of Scott, who is calling in from Vieques, Puerto Rico, to discuss just a few of the plant species that were part of what is now called the Colombian Exchange. Scott, welcome to the show again. 
Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Scott. Hello, my dears. <laughs> I hear your voices. Yeah. <laughs> so for those, Scott has been on the show several times. For those of you who may not have heard him uh, speak before as our guest, Scott Diapel is... The Green Man, a self-professed culinary horticulturist. Although he's a professional horticultural taxonomist, he is also a trained baker, chef, and culinary historian. The perfect guest for this radio station. Combining all of these disciplines into one, he explains to his cooking and gardening students the history of the diverse herbs, fruits, and vegetables used in the kitchen or cultivated in both temperate and tropical gardens. He is the author of several books and innumerable articles, and he lives in gardens in Vieques, and I might add, on, on a beautiful piece of land in a lovely house. So Scott, can you tell us briefly what the term Colombian exchange means? Well, in one sentence, the term means, or it is, the name given to the massive exchange of plants, animals, people, <clears throat> knowledge, and even diseases yep. that transpired after Columbus's voyages of 1492, 1493, and 1506. In a nutshell. Yeah, and it is massive. So we kind of had to abbreviate the list, like really narrow it down because uh, 30 Scott, minutes, you know, it's 30 minutes. Right. So let's, Scott, let's start with the ubiquitous plant corn because it's about as American a plant new world, and a new right. world as you can get. Tell us a little bit about how that started, you know, how that exchange happened from the old to the new. Well, the first thing about corn is that you have to know is it, it is the most ubiquitous or quintessential agricultural crop. When you think of the, of the fruits and vegetables that we eat, oh, asparagus, uh, beets, cabbage, peaches, pears, there are wild counterparts still existing in the world. That, that people, and we're not speaking about early humans, we're talking about modern-day people just like ourselves only several thousand years ago, who collected, found edible, began to uh, cultivate, and began to select and breed. But there is no such thing as a wild corn Right. Plant. Scientists have been looking for, for decades, looking for signs of wild corn. There is no such thing. Now, the scientists and archaeologists, and in fact you call them paleobotanists, did find remnants of corn in an excavation site in Mexico dating back 7,500 years. But the corn, the cobs, were smaller than your pinky finger. That's awfully small. Right, that's going to be hard to feed a family. <laughs> Wait a minute, isn't that what I get in my Chinese food? <laughs> well, the little corn. You know, that's a, you know, and that is a funny joke, but no, because that's immature corn. Right. right. Not, not dwarf corn I know. or early corn. But, well, I know they put so, strange things in there. But that's not. <laughs> well, it's Chinese. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, sorry, Scott. Sorry, Scott. That's okay. No, no, it's it's really funny. But, um, <laughs> so scientists began to, began to investigate and deduce. Now remember, corn and all the grains—wheat, oats, barley, rice—they're all members of the grass family, and they're all pollinated by the wind. No insects yeah. are needed. That's a very clever thing for a plant to have done. And they've discovered. And they figured out that people, thousands of years ago, living in Mexico and Guatemala, observed that certain wild grasses growing in close proximity, when the wind blew and they became pollinated, one plant began to, uh, to uh, manufacture or produce a little bit of a larger seed. 
Hmm. Over the millennium, and I'm thinking, really, it was women who did this because they're more observant and they have to feed the family. But over the millennium, they began to select the plants that had larger and larger seeds and eventually developed modern-day corn. Because what's amazing about corn, and I don't want to dwell too much, we have to husk corn. We all know that when you see a, a, a corn you know, in the husk. Evolutionarily speaking, that's, that's a, a, a genetic bombshell. It can't reproduce. It can't shed its seeds without being husked. Right. So that's totally a human innovation to right. protect the seeds from falling off. So it is quintessentially human and bred and induced crop, where others are really bred over centuries um, from what they were. And so uh, was it was it quickly adopted by the Europeans, Scott, um, when when they saw how how well, you know, it was doing in the Americas? Was it was it a crop that was pretty quickly um, brought to Europe? Well, it, w- it was quickly brought to Europe, but it was not quickly accepted as human food. Mm-hmm. Food for livestock, yes. A lot okay. of the trouble with introducing uh, these foodstuffs from the New World to the Old World, people were, people were appalled to, find, to be given something absolutely unknown and saying, here, eat this, it's really great. <laughs> right. People wouldn't do that. It was fine for your pigs and your horses. That's one thing. Test it out a very on them. Long, yeah. It took a very long time to be accepted. And um, when it did become accepted, it was cheap to produce, very filling. You could make cornbread. You could make cornmeal mush or Italy polenta mm-hmm. um, and eat corn on the cob. And that was very filling, but not nutritionally complete. Yes. During the Civil War, the South, as you know, would be a agricultural uh, half of the United States. Mm-hmm. And the Civil War, so the Confederate soldiers were eating cornmeal mush, cornbread, and corn on the cob. Mm-hmm. Very filling, very cheap, but nutritionally incomplete, and they all suffered from pellagra, meaning they uh, a dermatological disease you get from not having enough or balanced amino acids. Mm-hmm. But remember... Guatemalans and Mexicans had this down for millions of uh, thousands of years. If you balance beans with corn, you have balanced proteins and amino acids. And didn't they also that's soak the corn in lime, Scott? Milk. Well, that's... that's to yes. help break that's, down to make... What, yes, but that's Guatemalans and Mexicans. It's yeah. called nixtamalization, where right. they're mixing it with um, ashes from wood. And what it does is it makes the corn more digestible so that we can break it down and assimilate it better. Europeans didn't know anything about this. Right. Yeah. That's... And it's the reason that you can't make corn tortillas from plain old cornmeal. Yeah. You have to get nixtamalized masa harina, corn flour, mm-hmm. because that process makes it uh, uh, able to make a corn tortilla out of it. So then let's talk for a second about the other exchange from the old world to the new world, oats, wheat, and barley. How was that received? Um, Well, of course, hmm, that's a very good question. The Hopi Indians accepted wheat flour readily and mixed it with their corn flour to make cornbread. 
don't forget the Iroquois and other Native Americans, didn't bake. They were making fritters out of uh, chestnut flour and acorn flour and deep frying them in deer fat. Right. Um, it was the settlers who brought over the grain mm-hmm. with them because it was a familiar food stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it would be interesting to talk to an American Indian um, food historian uh, about about how how it was received and you know if there's any documentation on that. Because it, as it is, you know, as it is described, it's an exchange. It's not a one-way street. You know, right? For example, one of the plants that I found really interesting that I think of almost quintessentially uh, as American because it's on every colonial doorpost is the pineapple. Right. It's right? all about welcome and but hospita- hospitality. Yeah, but right. that's an old world. Is, that's a, is that a new world or old world crop, the pineapple? No, that, that's a new world crop. It's originally from Brazil. Okay. And, um, but the Tinos brought it with them when they colonized all of the Caribbean islands. And Columbus actually discovered it or encountered it. In 1493, when he encountered or discovered Guadalupe, and then subsequently Vieques, Puerto Rico, uh, also Saint Croix, and some other islands. And that was pretty. That was pretty well accepted by um, the Europeans, right? The pineapple as a as a well, food. Well, it has a very interesting history. Number one, of course, imagine seeing a pineapple for the first time. You'd absolutely flip out because it is yeah. so bizarre looking. Yeah, and yeah. Columbus called. Columbus called it piña, feminine for piño, which means pine cone, because he didn't know what else to call it. Right. Um, and, of course, they brought them back to Europe right away. But there were no such thing as greenhouses. Glass was very expensive. Right. But people tried to cultivate it in what they called stove houses, where it would be a building with soil built up with fresh manure with a horizontal chimney. So picture this. And, it, and not very well lit. So the heat would go horizontally to heat the soil. And as you know, fresh manure creates heat as it decomposes. <laughs> right. Because these, pla- because these plants are strictly tropical and can't take any frost at all. Right. So they were brought back in the 1500s, but it wasn't until 1642. Okay, that's centuries later. Right. Now yes. we're talking Jamestown. First, right. Yeah. That the first pineapple was grown or uh, grown into fruition in the Duchess of Cleveland's hothouse, and it was given to the to uh, the King of England, King Charles II, and the court painter painted uh, a portrait of it, and you can still see it. <laughs> I have to see gardener, this. I have to see this. The gardener, the gardener is on his knee presenting the king with a pineapple, Aww. and the reason it be- and the reason it became a, 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 um, the um, uh, image of hospitality. If you gave somebody a pineapple in the 16, 17, or 1800s, you were giving them a gift worth far more than jewels. Right, right. Because they were so difficult to come to get the fruit. And, so, and, and where did the peanut, first pina colada come from, Scott? <laughs> Who made that? I well, did. I'm not a mix- <laughs> I, well, I, can, I do my best as a mixologist. I really can't answer that question. We're going to have to get back that's to really you on what that. that. That's the real symbol of hospitality. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to take a break. Give us a minute when uh, we'll be back with Scott Appel, the green man, talking about the Columbian Exchange. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network.
Coast Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Hi, and welcome back to Weeded Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We're here with Scott Appel, horticultural taxonomist, discussing the massive exchange of species that began when Columbus hit the what became uh, the Caribbean coast. Let's stay in the tropics for a minute, Scott. Let's talk about um, some more tropical plants, such as uh, bananas and mangoes. When I think of bananas and mangoes, I think of the Caribbean. I think of them as new world species, but actually they're old world crops, right? Absolutely. And in fact, when you think of bananas, we think of Chiquita Banano right. and her little tropical outfit, which <laughs> was Chiquita a brilliant um, advertising scheme. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I think uh, uh, Caribbean, right? But where are they actually from? Well, bananas are actually uh, South Pacific and Southeast Asia, including uh, New Guinea. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many species of bananas. And the interesting thing about bananas, you know, when you slice it, and real picture of sliced banana, you see those little black specks. And those are called ovules. And those are what become seeds if the banana flower was pollinated. And wild bananas have lots of seeds. So imagine eating a banana with all those black ovules as seeds, and they're hard as hardtack. You'd be mm. spitting out hundreds of BB-sized seeds. And, of course, if that's all you have to eat, it's what you have to do for a living. Once upon a time, someone somewhere discovered a banana that had produced fruit that had no seeds. And in botany, we call this parthenocarpy. And from that, that one plant that bore fruit that was seedless, we get all of our modern-day bananas. And bananas moved up, uh, up through China westward. In fact, uh, ancient Rome during the time of the Caesars, they heard rumors of some bizarre yellow fruit, but they had never seen one. <laughs> and, in fact, and in fact, the Muslims knew about bananas because of how well-traveled they were. And in fact, the species named Paradisiaca, meaning paradise, comes from the fact that Muslims in the Koran believe the banana to be their tree of life, so to speak. Oh, Quite interesting. interesting and very little known. I did not know that, uh, no. But uh, it moved, the banana moved westward over millennium to West Africa, and that's where the Spanish and Portuguese sailors discovered it. And in fact, in Spanish, bananas are called guineo, coming from the word guinea, as in guinea, uh, tropical West Africa. Mm-hmm. Guineo. And they were brought guineo. If you said guinea, making it feminine, you'd have um, uh, the guinea hen which is a West African uh, owl. Right. Anyway, they brought bananas across the tropics to feed um, the people there. And, in fact, a great deal of the fruit and tuberous crops brought over to the New World were meant to feed the slaves. It was the slave trade that really, and this is a very uh, touchy subject, but it was the slave trade that really was the great impetus to bring food plants to the New World from the tropics. After all, how do you feed 
millions of people over the centuries to fill their stomachs, maybe not nutritionally complete, but fill their stomachs so that they could work and harvest sugar cane. Right. And cheaply. You know, cheaply. Cheaply. Yeah. Yes. Fill them up cheaply. And um, uh, so that's very little known as well. Well, one of my... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Scott. Oh, um, just a little tidbit. Uh, The museum in London reported in 1999 that during the uh, repairs of the London Bridge, dating from a layer dated to... uh, 1500, a preserved banana skin was found, which is now on display. Oh, and the big question was, how on earth did a banana skin get under the London Bridge in 1500, which is 150 years before the first written account of bananas in Great Britain? Well, who, yeah, that's... It was a guard. He just, you know, he couldn't find a garbage can. <laughs> he dropped it. Right. Henry VII had a sack and just tossed it. I know. Um, no, it was Curious so George. <laughs> <laughs> the, big, the man with the big yellow hat. He slipped and it fell. <laughs> sorry. We have, to, we have to add some levity. I'm sorry, Scott. No, uh, as far as mangoes go, mangoes yeah. are out from India and Myanmar. Oh, yeah. my favorite, my favorite sub. I guess, it is a subtropical fruit. I love mangoes. I love and them. What we, and what we don't know, what most North Americans don't know, um, is this. For example, if I said name six tomato cultivars of tomatoes, most folks can name six kinds of tomatoes. Or if I said name six apple kinds. Yeah. Apple varieties. We got. We could do that more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, in India. There are hundreds of kinds of mangoes. So we, when we, in the States, look at a mango, we just say, oh, it's a mango. Right. But in India, you would say it's a, this kind of a mango or it's that kind of a mango. Right. The particular. And that, that exists even here in Puerto Rico. Really? Yeah, because, because they grow here and are cultivated here. There are mangoes that are known for their sweetness. There are mangoes that are very fibrous and not very good for eating, but they make great juice. There are mangoes that are very large. There are mangoes that are very small. Um, so it's um, because we it's because it's tropical. It's another mindset. Whereas here, if I said name six kinds of apples, typical Puerto Rican, well, wouldn't really know because right. it's not part of the culture. Right. It's just a generic said, apple. Right. Right, an apple's an apple. It's red, it's green, it might be yellow. Right. But if you said name some banana, uh, some mangoes, they could rattle off some kinds. Right. Because it's, it's, it's part of the culture. So it's, it all depends about where you live. All right, let's, let's also then talk, we have to talk, since we're kind of talking about orange and yellow, <laughs> let's talk about the yams. Oh, yes. And taro. Yeah, they're well, they're they're staples of the Caribbean diet, right, Scott? They're but they're but they're old world species. Yes. Um, once again, they were brought over to feed slaves. Right. Carbohydrates. You need a lot of carbohydrates to do a lot of physical work. Uh huh. Yams are from Africa. Yeah. So there are some species from China and Japan. Uh huh. Um, you can't eat a yam raw. No. Because of a chemical called diascorine. They're always cooked. Boiled, baked, fried, sautéed, whatever you like. Uh-huh. Taro, which we know in the United States is an ornamental summer bulb called elephant ears. Right. It's a beautiful plant. 
yes, huge arrowhead green leaves. Amazing. Uh-huh. And um, it's from China originally and moved throughout the tropics westward, even into Egypt, where it's grown sort of rice paddy style in, in sort of uh, uh, um, pools, pools of muddy water. Um, and once again, you can't eat this raw or can't eat that raw either. So, Scott, let me, ha- I'm sorry, can I ask you one question? Because to me, when I think of taro, I, I just remember when I traveled to Hawaii and I saw the taro fields and they were so gorgeous and vast. How did, and you you were saying that it traveled westward, but did we, did, did the Americans bring it? The Europeans bring it to Hawaii? Hawaii, or did it, do you think it was in Hawaii before? No, it was brought eastward. Okay. A lot of, a lot of plants in the South Pacific were brought from Indonesia. Ah. Uh, the people who colonized Polynesia, Micronesia, Hawaii, okay. Australia. Okay. So it was, so it was, it was in Hawaii before Columbus. Probably. I w- I mean, not I that Hawaii was so Hawaii, but it was in... It, it's, the ba- it's the basis for the national dish, poi. Right, poi, poi, yes. Which is actually awful. Tasteless. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's fermented, and you eat it with your fingers, and there are... Yeah. There's, there's one-finger poi, two-finger poi, and three-finger <laughs> poi, depending on how thick it is. The, the, the best part about poi is the color, actually. The purple color is beautiful. Uh-huh. Yeah. But you have to remember... We all need carbohydrates, right. and people globally use different plants to satisfy that carbohydrate need. Yeah. You know, corn doesn't grow everywhere. Wheat doesn't grow everywhere. Mm-hmm. People utilize plants in their vicinity. In New Guinea, you, they use the trunk of the sago palm and ferment that for a, a, a potato, a mashed potato-like uh, pudding The sago palm? Uh, product. Oh, the sago palm. Okay. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh, I didn't realize that about the sago palm, that that was a, that it had a, a culinary use. Yes, it, it's, the, it's the only carbohydrate they get. Oh. There's no other crops. Right. People who live in, in the natives of, of Amerindia in Brazil and, and Venezuela, uh-huh. it, 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 there's no crops. I mean, there's no grain crop there. Right, no. They, had, they have cassava, what we, make, what we know as tapioca. Well, is known in Spanish as juca, mm-hmm. and it's their only carbohydrate. Okay, now let's talk about our American carbohydrate: the potato, the potato, potato. Love potato. Pot- love potato. <laughs> My fave. Yes, well, yes. Well, I, I'm not Ella Fitzgerald, so I won't sing. <laughs> but, um, they well, they've been cultivated in Bolivia and Peru for at least seven thousand years. Right, and of course. There, and even still today, they have hundreds of kinds of potatoes. Hundreds of kinds. Big, small, variously colored. They eat them baked. Of course, you don't eat potatoes raw. But they make a product called chunya, C-H-U-N-A, with a tilde over the end, which is basically freeze-dried potatoes, which they can reconstitute with water for the wintertime. And potatoes were brought over to the, the New World. In fact, they were brought to the court of Philip I. In the 1500s, he was the first European to see them. And, of course, he thought they were totally bizarre. Mm-hmm. And so that's the 1500s. It took hundreds of years 
It was not until 1789 that potatoes became considered a food fit for human beings. They were, once again, they were considered fine for cattle, fine for swine, <laughs> not as human food, no way. So how do you, th- it, what was, what do you think, I'm sorry, Scott, what do you think the first use of the potato for food was? Was it mashed? Was it fried? Was it? Where? In Bolivia, you mean? Yeah. It, or, in it, Bolivia? Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, well, it was, it was all of it. It was roasted. Okay. It was, easily, it was easy to roast. Of course, at that elevation, it's hard to boil water. Right. So it takes a, there's no pressure cookers there, you know, at that time. <laughs> so, they were, so they were usually roasted. Or chunya, because when you make chunya, all you do is add water. You don't have to cook them. Well, okay, a chemical wh- reaction that makes them edible. Right. So what, they, a, how do you, what was the European first culinary use? What do you think that would have been? Probably boiled? Well, there, well, there was a French army physicist, a pharmacist, and agronomist named Antoine Auguste Parmentier. And he was at the court of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And before the French Revolution, he was pushing people to eat potato bread. Because it was so nutritious. Okay. Remember, potatoes have far more protein and far less carbohydrate than bread. So you can eat potatoes easily alone for six months and be well-nourished, not malnourished. Right. Right. But people didn't accept that very well. And they didn't like potato soup either. (laughs) Vichyssoise? No? (laughs) So good. But he had a very clever plan. Louis and uh, Marie had a little country, a little country home, of course, which was a vast estate where they can let their hair down. <laughs> and, he got the, and he got them to plant 50 acres of potatoes. And uh, Louis had guards with bayonets guard the potato field at night. And the local people thought if the king is having these plants, with these tubers, guarded with bayonets at night... There must be something to this. Right. And then, uh, to top it all off, Amantier gave Louise and Marie little bouquets of potato flowers, and Marie wore one in her either her decolletage or her hair, uh, and made a vogue of wearing potato flowers because they're <laughs> lilac and yellow and very pretty. They yeah. are pretty, yeah. It was, and then, of course, after 1789 and the French Revolution, when folks were starving... right. Then they accepted the potato openly because nobody had anything to eat. Right, right, right. Well, that's a whole other story. Right. right. In fact, to this day in French cuisine, anything with the word or his name Parmentier following it, Luce Parmentier, food Parmentier, always has potatoes by virtue of his name. Ah, that's very interesting. He's eternally equated with with the potato. (laughs) He got folks to eat it. Well, I thank him. I personally thank him because I can't imagine life without boiled, baked, fried, you know. Chipped. Chipped, (laughs) especially chipped. (laughs) I love them. Yes, but it took another hundred years for the pomfrit, for the French fries. Yes, right. That's another story. That's another story. (laughs) Well, Scott, I'm sorry. We are out of time, and we could just, of course, talk to you forever. We always learn so, so much. 
Um, thank you for sharing your knowledge and being our guest today. I'm sure many of our listeners will look down at their plates tonight at their palm frites uh, with a new appreciation of how much it has been affected by that intrepid explorer, Christopher Columbus. I know I will. Thanks to Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Come get yourself a pie. Our show is produced by Jack Inslee and engineered by Joe G. An archive of the show is available at heritageradionetwork.com. We dig plants. Join our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc. We dig plants. Thanks for listening and happy gardening. See you in the garden. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Her- Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 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 Listening.